Our first reading today is Job chapter 35, verses 1 to 16. Then Elihu said, Do you think this is just? You say, I am in the right, not God. Yet you ask him, What profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? I would like to reply to you and to your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see, gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself and your righteousness only other people. People cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. But no one says, Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than he teaches the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds in the sky? He does not answer when people cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less, then, will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him and you must wait for him? And further, that his anger never punishes and he does not take the least notice of wickedness. So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. Our second reading is Job chapter 37, verses 14 to 24. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect, who has perfect knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies, hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendour. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore people revere him for he does not have regard for all the wise in heart. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Well, good morning, everyone. Um, if you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great that you're with us as we continue through this series in Job. We've come to an interesting section, often the sort of the lost section of Job, with um, this figure Elihu. So um, let me pray for us that God will help us as we uh, think about this section, what we can learn from it this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you've revealed yourself to us clearly through your word and ultimately in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we ask this morning that you might 
Uh, speak clearly to us again that we may hear your voice in Scripture, that we might respond rightly in repentance and faith. Strengthen us, we pray, to not only hear and heed, but to uh, yes, act on it in our lives. For we ask this for Christ's glory. Amen. Well, in the Times of India newspaper a few years ago, uh, there was an article entitled Kangaroo Courts Rise and Thrive in India. On March the 2nd, 2013, Jatendra Chowdhury was hung from a tree for beating his wife. A kangaroo court in Bokoro, held at the request of a local legislator, reportedly meted out this medieval-style justice after his wife complained that he often got drunk and mistreated her. Primitive, powerful, potent, large swathes of India are still governed today by kangaroo courts that take arbitrary decisions on anything ranging from somebody stealing a cow to intercaste marriages. And the reason this happens is that the judicial courts, the proper system, is neck deep in pending cases that it can never get to. So meanwhile, the country's parallel system, the kangaroo courts, are dispensing justice fast, but often with deadly consequences. Because when there is no due process, well, then lawless, lawlessness can reign and the possibility of injustices being carried out grows and grows. And as we consider chapters 32 to 37 today, we find a new player entering the debate. The three friends have finished their arguments to Job. Job himself has given his final defence that finished in chapter 31. And in that final defence, he demanded that God answer him. We read these words in chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. Job pleads, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. What Job is doing here is really speaking in courtroom language. Um, he's asking for a day in court with God that God might answer his questions about what is happening to him in his life. And so Elihu enters uh, this new figure and he takes on the role of defending God and prosecuting Job in his own kangaroo court. As we'll see, uh, he offers a mixed commentary. Uh, but in the end, he does help prepare us for God's speech, which will come from chapter 38. Like the three friends, he says a number of things that are true about God. He's certainly zealous for God. He speaks about God's justice and power. He does that in a helpful way. But he also misrepresents God despite his zeal. He dispenses swift judgment in his thoughts, even though he lacks full knowledge of the situation. So that leads to the big question that I want us to consider this morning. And that is this, how does God respond to our suffering? Because Elihu makes a number of assertions about how God responds to us, but how does God really respond to our suffering? Three answers to that question this morning. First answer is this, God responds to our suffering by speaking directly to us, by speaking directly to us. Notice what is stated in chapter 32, uh, verses 17 to 20. I too, this is Elihu speaking, 
will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. Elihu, um, at the start of the chapter, is introduced to us as uh, somebody that has a short genealogy in verse 2, something that wasn't afforded the three friends, nor even Job. And so he seems to be a person of some standing that that would even be noted. Uh, More than that, while the three friends at the end of the book of Job get rebuked by the Lord, there's no mention of Elihu. He's not rebuked. And we learn in this chapter that he has been listening closely. I think we often read the first part of the book of Job and think, well, it's just Job sitting in the dirt and his three friends around him in a circle and they're having a debate. But it seems that there are others listening in, at least Elihu, perhaps others beside him. And so he's heard all the arguments back and forth and he comes to prosecute this case because he's dissatisfied with the three friends. He feels like they didn't offer a strong enough rebuttal of Job and his charges against God. Because Job has been saying that, well, God is now his enemy and that God has been unfair to him. And Elihu doesn't think this is right. He thinks the three friends should have done more to refute Job, to make a strong public defense of God. And so in his disappointment, he now takes up the charges, as it were. He's got his own court. And so Elihu assumes, and he later asserts in his arguments, that God is not going to speak directly to Job. Job is never going to get an answer directly from God. That's not going to happen, and so he'll do it for him. He argues for God. And he says, well, you know, it would be improper for God to appear before a human court. You know, who are you, Job, to think you can command God to appear before you? And yes, there's something very right about that. But Elihu is depicted as somebody who's passionate, zealous for God, but he's also very hot-headed, Uh, Four times in the introduction, in the opening sort of few verses, we're informed that Elihu is angry. He's angry, he says, on behalf of God. He presents himself as patient, as somebody who's listened to all the arguments from the three friends, and he certainly hasn't butted in. He now has his say. But he does come across as brash and arrogant in his views at times. He offers some insights, as I mentioned earlier, but notice in these verses, verses 17 to 20, that he's so desperate to download his wisdom, but there's a play on words going here that's saying he's full of hot air, actually. In chapter 32 and 33, Elihu's trying to establish the need for God to be defended, that he won't be answering Job. But he does note that God can answer in indirect ways. That's the allowance that Elihu makes. Notice what he says in verses 13 to 19 of chapter 33. Why do you complain to him, Job, that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night. When deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears, terrifying them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing, to keep them from pride, to to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. There's one option. Or, verse 19, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones. 
In this section, Elihu actually lists three ways that God might answer somebody indirectly. Warnings through dreams or visions, as we just read, trials involving severe illness, even the threat of death. And then in the verses that follow that I didn't read then, answers to prayer which might lead to restoration. The inference is, though, that Job has received the first two and he should act on the third. See, the suffering, Elihu is saying, that Job has experienced has been a warning to him. The severe illness that God has brought is God speaking indirectly to him. And therefore, thirdly, he should pray and ask for God to restore him. At this point, he's sounding a lot like the three friends. But of course, we know otherwise from the very beginning of the book. Job is not being punished for specific sins. His faith is being tested. And Job, of course, understands that. He believes other than the friends are saying. He's been arguing this as his case all along. But more importantly, as we think about what Elihu is saying here, is that God can speak for himself and doesn't need Elihu to represent him. Elihu is wrong to think that God won't answer Job directly because he does so immediately after Elihu's speech. Chapter 38 begins with the words, Then the Lord spoke to Job. But as we apply this to ourselves today, uh, we might think that we're not going to get a direct word from God like Job. And so perhaps what Elihu's arguing applies to us, you know, that we'll only get to hear from God indirectly. But have a look at what Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 state as we think about this larger theme for ourselves. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. What's the application of what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here of Jesus being the final complete word? Well, it's that God speaks directly to us today through his word, which centers on Christ. And sadly, some believers today downplay God's direct words to us in Scripture, and they choose other stories in Scripture, like Elijah's still small voice or Gideon's fleece that he lays out, and they long that God might speak to them indirectly in a manner like that. But we don't actually need Gideon's fleece. We've been given God's word, the Bible. Now, of course, in saying that, I'm not limiting what God may choose to do. If he should choose, God could send us dreams. He often does that for people today. For that matter, God could still write on a wall. He could appear in a burning bush, couldn't he? But in terms of what God has promised to do for us, it is to speak to us directly through his word. The Bible, we listen to his voice in the pages of Scripture. The Christian hasn't been given a map, an exact blueprint of their whole life. That's often where we go wrong. Rather, we've been given a guide, Jesus Christ. And the way we follow our guide is by listening to his voice in the Bible, by prayerfully meditating on it with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
we need to be aware as believers today of what we already have. In 1995, I got to visit um, Hearst Castle. Uh, it's in Sam Sibian in California. It was built by William Randolph Hearst. He was an American billionaire who made his fortune as a newspaper publisher. He died uh, back in 1951 now, but throughout his life, he was a voracious art collector, a passion originally inspired by his mother. He filled Hearst Castle with thousands upon thousands of antique pieces. He spent over a million dollars a year on his collection for decades. And it's claimed that one day he read about a very valuable piece of art in an art magazine and he decided that he must have it and he would buy it. And so he called his agent and sent him out, as he often did, to go and get this piece the agent was flying all around the world trying to find it and returned to him and said, I, I can't find the piece, Mr. Hurst. It's, it's not available. No, I must have it, he insisted, and, and sent him out again. Some weeks later, his agent came back to him and said, Mr. Hurst, I have found the piece of art. Oh, that's wonderful. Where was it, he said. Oh, it was in your own warehouse, sir. You bought it several years ago. You see, I think the same could be said of Christians who have all the riches of God's word, the record of his ultimate revelation through his son Jesus, and yet ignore it, put it to the side, and go in search of indirect words from God which we have not been promised. And that brings us to a second answer, a second answer as to how God responds to our suffering, not only by speaking to us directly, but secondly, by being close and compassionate, by being close to us and compassionate. So notice what is stated in chapter 35, uh, verses 6 to 8 and 12 to 13. Elihu says, If you sin, how does it affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? Speaking of God, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself and your righteousness only other people. He does not answer when people cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. The theme of Elihu's argument here is God's transcendence. That's how theologians speak about this idea that God is so great and so high above us that he is unaffected uh, by the struggles of this world. Certainly that is true in the sense that he is far above us. But it's not that he is unaffected by human sin. It doesn't mean that he is detached from human suffering, as Elihu is suggesting. The thinking behind his assertions here is that God's greatness means that it's a sheer impossibility for God to be really concerned about the trials that go on on earth like Job's. And certainly God transcends our fallen world. He's not constrained by our earthly limitations. But in saying something true about God's majesty, Elihu is saying something false about God's disinterest in our struggles and his lack of concern about humanity's rebellion. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent, or that is, close to us. He's active, he's engaged in his creation. 
God is transcendent, but he's also loving and compassionate. He's aware of the suffering of people. And so Elihu's wisdom at this point is misleading. His advice to Job at this point is wrong and ultimately dangerous. Have you ever had somebody give you bad advice? A guy I know went to Kayama Blowhole um, a few years ago with his mate, and uh, his mate was a bit of a daredevil, and he suggested that they just jump into the blowhole from the rocks above. It's no problem, he said. You know, you just jump in when the water comes up through the blowhole, and so you just land safely, and it's like a pool of water. There's no problem at all. He then did so, landed safely in the water, and egged on my friend to do the same. Come on, it's easy. You're not scared, are you? But my friend was feeling a bit unsure about this. I mean, this is dangerous. He's a bit nervous about the whole thing. He was holding off. Eventually, he felt the pressure and decided to do it. He'd seen his mate do it. It had worked out all right. It's only about a five or ten meter drop, so what could go wrong, right? Well, he jumped off, but his timing was not as good as his mate's, and he landed in very shallow water as the water was receding back out through the blowhole. Uh, he landed on his backside and broke his tailbone. And um, tailbones take a long while to refuse. You, you can't really do anything with them. Um, you simply have to wait for the improvement, and every time you sit down, you've got the threat of re-breaking it. He spent several weeks in pain, but he was very lucky, of course, wasn't he? The blowhole is unpredictable. Jumping in is completely dangerous. In fact, a number of people have died over the last few decades doing just that. That's why council in more recent years put up a fence around it. It seemed plausible what his friend said, but his friend's advice was not very sound. The Bible is clear in many places on these two issues that Elihu raises, that our sin impacts God. It grieves him. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we read, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And what follows in the next couple of verses is that God's heart is so deeply troubled by this that he regrets that he even made humanity. This is the impact of human sin on God. Likewise, God notices and has compassion on our suffering. The New Testament even comments about that with regard to Job. So in James 5, verses 10 and 11, we read these words. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord's eventual response to Job is held out as an example here in James of the Lord's compassion, shown towards the sufferer. The Lord is aware of our needs. He responds to them. Even if the timing is not quite how we would like things to occur at times, he's always expressing his compassionate heart for his people. I think our difficulty as we think about this is that we know that the Bible teaches that God is merciful and compassionate. And so we think that he should instantly remove our suffering. 
We often don't see that God could have good purposes in the short term for bringing suffering into our lives. There's a poem that expresses that struggle this way. I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak so that I might humbly obey. I asked for health so that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of people. I was given weakness that I might feel my need of God. You see, God does respond to our suffering. He comes close to us. He shows us compassion. God is always at work in his world, always aware of what's happening in our lives. And that brings me to a third and a final answer to this question of how God responds to our suffering. Thirdly and finally, by being all-powerful and just. By being all-powerful and just. So notice again how chapter 37, verses 14 to 16 read. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power in his justice and great righteousness. He does not oppress. Having interpreted uh, the storms of God as evidence of God's power and ability to govern his world, he turns to Job and asks him if he's in agreement, basically. This final speech of Elihu is really preparing us for God's speech that will follow in chapter 38, where God really majors on his power in creation and how that should help us to realize that he knows what he's doing, that we understand so little of what's around us. This final speech prepares for God because only God knows the answers to these rhetorical questions that Elihu is asking Job. Job doesn't know the answers to these. These wonders or marvels are beyond his comprehension. And in verse 23, as Elihu is trying to sum up his arguments, he asserts that therefore this applies to the question of his justice as well. He says we can't question God's justice if we don't even know how his world works and he governs all of this. That God is innocent of any charge of injustice is something that Elihu has argued quite strongly and quite rightly throughout these chapters. What he states here at the end is that given this, God will not oppress people. He does not turn his face away. The afflicted will receive their rights. Elihu is certainly correct on these points and the, and the rest of the Bible upholds these truths. But again, our struggle is that we don't always see the afflicted given their rights. We don't often see justice in this life. On July 25, uh, 25th, 1993, uh, St. James Kenilworth Anglican Church in Cape Town in South Africa was having its Sunday evening service when it was disrupted by a number of armed men who fired indiscriminately upon the congregation. They also threw in hand grenades that were attached to tins of nails. 
And as a result, 11 people died and 55 were injured. Some were horribly maimed for life. The St. James Massacre, as it became known, uh, happened in a church where there was a well-known minister, Frank Retief. He's often come out to Australia and spoken at Katuma conventions and so on. And it was by no means the worst of the atrocities that were happening in this particular period of South Africa's history. But it stood out at the time because it was very inexplicable. Uh, the attackers even admitted later they had no issue with the church or anyone in it. It was simply a random act of violence designed to increase the level of unrest in the country, to get political ends that they were seeking. But as Frank Retief pointed out, the deeper question that was much harder for many in the church to come to grips with was why had God allowed this? Where was the justice for the families who lost loved ones? Where were the rights of the afflicted here? Of course, a large part of the New Testament's answer to that question is that God's final judgment has not taken place. Frank Retief and the people of St. James were well aware of that truth too, I might add. But that's a hard truth at such a moment, isn't it? All things have not yet been accounted for. All things have not yet been put right. But a day is coming. And there is an even greater threat that the New Testament wants to raise in terms of God's justice. We tend to look at the disasters and the atrocities in our world and say, how could God that let that to happen? God can't be just. There's my question. And so non-Christians especially will raise that one. How can God be a loving God and a God of justice if these things occur? The Bible says there's a bigger threat to understanding whether God is just, and that is how he could let one sinner into heaven. And that's something we don't tend to contemplate as we worry about the extreme cases in our world. Let me take you to Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. The Apostle Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see what Paul's saying here? Paul's raising an argument that people have brought to him. Perhaps God is unjust to justify sinners. And how is his perfect justice protected by this gracious act? Is he minimizing sin? Paul argues on the contrary that God's justice is demonstrated by the sacrificial giving of his son in our place. This is God's ultimate response to suffering. He enters into our world and he deals with the root cause of it. All suffering stems from the fall and our sin. And verse 26 tells us that both God can both justify sinners simply through faith and uphold his own perfect justice. Both are achieved through the atoning work on the cross. In Jesus' death, sin was fully dealt with. It was punished, not minimized. Christ bore the Father's wrath. 
He faced the alienation that we deserve. And in this way, God's holy justice is fully satisfied. He does not overlook nor condone sin. God justly receives as a result those who trust in his son because they are credited with his son's perfect righteousness. God responds to our suffering by being just in a way that will put an end to suffering one day for all those who trust in Jesus. Well, as we consider this question this morning, how does God respond to our suffering? We've seen he does so by speaking directly to us in his word. He does so by being close and compassionate to us. He does so by being all-powerful and just and one day putting a full stop on suffering. Let me pray for us. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ and his sacrifice for us, that in him all the problems of this world are finally dealt with and will be one day squared away at the final judgment because he, the one who laid down his life, be the judge of the living and the dead and full justice will be brought and we thank you that in this we can have great hope and trust great certainty of your love and compassion your concern for your world uh, help us to live in the light of these truths for we ask it in christ's name